I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everybody and a very Merry Christmas. Welcome to the Euro Trip, the first of our two very special festive episodes. I'm Rob, you will know by now that normally I present this podcast with a lovely little fella called James. Now James will be here next week with his Christmas gift to you all, but it is my turn this week to bring you what I've got for you underneath our Eurovision tree. And it is a feature-length interview with the former executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest, Jon Ola Sand. Now, I don't need to tell you how big a deal this is and just how influential a figure he has been to the Eurovision Song Contest and the Junior Eurovision Song Contest over the last decade or so. He was in the role from 2011 all the way through to the Council Contest of 2020. So, understandably, there is plenty to talk to him about. We go over all sorts of stuff, including his best moments, his favourite moments, the things that he would have liked to change that he wasn't able to do during his time as the executive supervisor, and all sorts of other stuff as well. For example, I ask him, why can't the juries at Eurovision be bigger than five? Turns out they can, so we talk all about that as well. And we also have a bit of a chat about Italy and how delighted he is to see them as the hosts of Eurovision in 2022. Thank you to Jon Olaf for being so generous with his time. And please do let me know what you think of this. 
get in touch on social media we are at eurotrip podcast on twitter and instagram and i would love to hear your comments and we are on the email as well if you've got a longer message you want to send hello at eurotrippodcast.com i'll be back after this interview to tell you all about james's gift and who he's got for you next week but for now let's get to it i recommend you sit back relax get yourself all cozy and warm and just listen to what is a fascinating chat. Here he is then, Jon Olesand, and I started by asking him how he decided that 2020 would be his final Eurovision Song Contest. Well, I think it has been uh, 10 very good years. I think we've had uh, good contests uh, all the way. Um, I'm very happy with the work I've done for the Eurovision Song Contest uh, and together with the team in the EU and the host broadcasters. So uh, I would say it has been 10 good years. Why did you make the decision to, to step down when you did? Of course, you know, if all had been well, you would have gone out after a fantastic contest in Rotterdam in 2020. That wasn't to be the case. But, but why was 2020 the right time for you? I was aiming at 2020, actually, for the 10th Eurovision Song Contest in this position. Uh, and uh, I thought, you know, that's a good, good number to end with. I thought that, uh, that staying on board one or two years could be enough, more years could be an option. But uh, sometimes I think it's, it's healthy and wise to step down. Uh, no one should be in a position for too long, that kind of position for too long. And uh, it's time to let new people in and they can reflect and, and look at things in a different way. So I thought it was a good number, 10. And then um, we had the pandemic coming up, but that's another story. Was there a small part of you that thought when, of course, you know, we saw you announced that the 2020 contest wouldn't be taking place, was there a small part of you that thought, I'm going to stick around and I'll, I'll wait and I'll, you know, you know, wrap up after 2021 and after you've had your 10th contest? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, that decision was made and we already started to roll in Martin uh, and uh, there were no option to, to stay on. I, I, I wouldn't do that. Uh, in fact, it wasn't for the number 10, but it was, you know, I, I had fantastic years with the Eurovision Sound Contest and I thought it was time to move on, basically. Did you play a role in, of course, deciding your successor? Because we've had Martin Osterdahl on the podcast before. He's He's been brilliant to, to chat to. He's very open as, as you are. And and I'm wondering, you know, of course, you knew him beforehand. You worked with him on previous occasions. Did, did you play a part in him being chosen as your successor? No, I did not. Um, I have no play, no role in that actually. Uh, that was handled by DBU and the chairman of the reference group and a, and a professional company. Uh, so, so I did not play a role in that. No. But was it nice to see someone that you work with for uh, for for as I say, someone you worked with previously get the job, and you you know that your your former role now is in safe hands. Yeah, it's absolutely in safe hands. I know Martin very well, and uh, I'm very happy that he came on board and that he wanted to do uh, uh, do this uh, for, the, for the sake of the Eurovision Song Contest. And he's a highly professional, very competent guy. So, yeah, I'm happy that he came on board. Now, let's go back then, Jonala, if, if it's okay with you. I'm, I'm intrigued as to how easy it was to say yes to the role when it was first offered to you. <laughs> 
I wasn't really very keen on that role, uh, to be honest. Uh, I had other plans. Uh, it was not my plan to move to Geneva and to work for the EBU at that point in time. I had done the Eurovision Song Contest in Oslo. Uh, and uh, when Svantos Doxelius left his position, uh, the EBU contacted me. And quite honestly, I was not that keen. But... Uh, but I had several talks with EBU, and uh, then I decided, okay, I, I, I give it a shot. I can, I can do that. Uh, and I moved to Geneva, and I stayed for much longer than I actually anticipated in, in, in the first round. So, so yeah, well, um, and I think it was the right decision, both for me and for the Eurovision Sunrise. <laughs> How long did it take from, from kind of those first discussions, you having to think about it, you not being sure, and then you finally saying, yes, I will be the executive supervisor. Oh, it took almost six months. What were the things that, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, what were the, the kind of the things that, that were in the back of your mind, nagging you, thinking that this might not be the right thing for you? Well, I mean, I had other plans, basically. I mean, you, you uh, after you have done your Eurovision Song Contest, uh, I thought, well, that's enough of the Sun Contest for, for quite a while. I had also been connected with the Eurovision Sun Contest for very many years as a head of delegation. I had commissioned a program for, uh, for uh, MRK and uh, I thought it's, it's time to do something else, uh, basically. Uh, it was a very uh, tough, uh, challenging and rewarding year with the Eurovision Sun Contest in Oslo. And I thought, well, now it's time to do something different. So, so uh, well, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's more or less it. You, you mentioned your your previous relationship with the contest, of course, as head of delegation for Norway, which is potentially a connection that you have with Eurovision that, that some of our listeners may not have realised before. So, do you mind talking us through kind of which contests you were in that role for the Norwegian broadcaster and? And what your experiences were like at those various editions of the contest? Well, I was attached to more or less, more or less, uh, all the contests from uh, '98 and upwards. Oh, ho! Hold it down to a dull roar. The rest of Europe thinks the British are reserved. Bonsoir, mesdames et messieurs. Bienvenue à 43e concours Eurovision de la chanson en direct de la National Indoor Arena of Birmingham. In the role as the head of delegation or in, in different roles uh, in the delegation or at the broadcaster. And I mean, the first one was at the BBC, uh, and uh, it, was a, uh, it was a great show. I, I think they took it to another level. I think the, the contest uh, in Stockholm in 2000 was, uh, was a very good, uh, no, 2001 was a very good addition uh, for the for the uh, no in 2000 <laughs> sorry it was a very good addition uh and then uh i mean all all the way from from uh, 
from uh, when I started as a head of delegation, uh, it, some of this started to develop enormously. That in '98, uh, that was last year, the, the the orchestra was in place, uh, and then a couple of years later, we started with uh, one semi-final and then a second semi-final. Uh, so the contest developed a lot in that time. A lot more countries came on board. So it was uh, an exciting time and, uh, as always, a challenging time for a Norwegian delegation to participate in the Eurovision Song Contest uh, because the track record uh, in these days wasn't that good. So there were some great years, uh, I think. You mentioned there, you know, a hugely interesting period of, of the Song Contest history. One thing I wanted to touch on, of course, we saw in the kind of mid to early 2000s countries winning the contest for the first time, you know, Estonia, Latvia, for example, these Baltic nations who were eventually able to host the contest. There was a lot of discussion at the time around whether or not they could host the the competition, of course. Did you learn a lot having kind of visited those countries and being involved in the role that you were in? which would stand you in good stead going forward, you know, that, that actually anyone can win and can host the contest and do it justice. Yeah, I, I, I have always been confident that, that we could take that show to any corner of Europe, to any broadcaster and, and make it a, a good addition. And uh, I, I was working a lot with the Estonian, uh, with Estonian TV at the time, uh, the country... The, the contest was there. And uh, yeah, it gave me confidence that it can be done. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a small broadcaster or, or, or in, a, in a stressed financial situation, you can always find ways around that and, 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 and make a great contest. Some may scoff at even snigger at the old Euro song, but winning it last year was regarded as a major breakthrough by the Estonians, an opportunity to show themselves off, make their mark in Europe. 7,000 people here tonight in the Saku Surhala. Hundreds of millions around the world watching from Reykjavik to Sydney. The old Hanseatic town, 13th century. Tallinn. So that was a good learning, uh, good learning years. And I, and I think being the executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Office, you have to know the contest, uh, and you have to know the, the the history of the contest, and 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 it's it's very difficult to come from an uh, environment outside of the Eurovision Song Contest or DBU, um, and 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 enter into the position as the executive supervisor because there you accumulate a lot of knowledge over the years that that you need in that kind of job. So yes. There will, Good learning years, you can say. And then after that run of, of Estonia and, and Latvia, you know, we had the contest in, in Istanbul, in Turkey as well, which which in itself must have been thoroughly interesting to, to visit. Of course, unfortunately, we don't have Turkey in the contest anymore. They they exited just after you'd taken the role of, of executive supervisor. Is, is that a great disappointment that you didn't have Turkey for, for the, the most part of your time in the in the position? Yeah, I always enjoyed working with the Turkey uh, delegation. They were, they were always well prepared. They always had cool acts, uh, different acts. Uh, so yeah, I think it was a loss for the Eurovision Song Contest not to have them in there. And uh, we we had a lot of talks with the broadcaster and uh, and with 
you know, people within the media sector uh, in Turkey and to try to convince the broadcaster to come back to the Eurovision Song Contest, but we, we didn't succeed. And I, 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 I think it's, it's sad because they, they really brought out the diversity uh, in the Song Contest and, and they were always, you know, well-prepared, good, good team. I'm sure I heard an interview that you you gave recently where actually you said that you were, I think, surprised that Turkey had withdrawn because it wasn't something that you had any prior knowledge of when when that decision actually took place. No, that came more or less out of the blue for for uh, anyone. Uh, also, the the other people at EBU uh, and and as you probably know, the EBU has a lot of. of has a much broader contact with uh, its members than the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, and no one really saw that coming. Now, when it comes to the role of executive supervisor, of course, there are <laughs> countless jobs that you are responsible for, countless things that you have to oversee. Is there a least favourite part of that job that you can kind of look back on now? No, not really. Not really. I mean, you have to, <laughs> you have to love it all to be... Um, a good executive supervisor. I mean, there's a lot of problems, a lot of responsibility. Uh, there are a lot of uh, discussions going on, uh, left, right, and center, with uh, the governing structure around the Eurovision Song Contest, with the members, uh, with you know everyone involved, uh, and that can be complicated. That can be quite stressful at times. But uh, no, I have no, you know, I have only good memories and only good things to say about the role as the executive supervisor. So, um, well, um, yeah, there is, there is uh, no least favorite part of uh, the job as executive supervisor, in my opinion. Which is exactly how you want to look back on a job, I think. You know, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to sit there and think, you know, there were, there were bits that you didn't enjoy. Absolutely. Another question on that, I suppose, and, you know, it is a tricky thing being in that position when you have so many countries that you are, you know, communicating with, so many countries that you are, that are, that are encompassed within Eurovision, but they've all got their own kind of relationships, geopolitical relationships, you know, how much does that come into the role in terms of you trying to keep everybody happy? Well, yeah, well, it's... Uh... There are a lot of stakeholders around the Eurovision Song Contest, and you know, especially the the, the EBU members. Uh, and but but as I said, we know the EBU members very well, uh, and uh, I know you know all of the uh, heads of delegations very well. Uh, we talk to them on a regular basis. We communicate all year round with with uh, with almost all of them, uh, and, and and that can be. You know, usually there are no harsh conflicts in in, in these discussions, and uh, and we have a good set of rules. We have a good set of understanding what the Eurovision Song Contest is and what the Eurovision Song Contest should be among us as EBU members. So uh, so, but we, you need some diplomatic skills for sure uh, to to make sure you balance all the uh, all these different interests uh, well. Uh, but uh, people seem to forget that the, the executive supervisor for the Eurovision Song Contest is a job. The job that is, is sometimes, like any job, it can be tough. Sometimes it's, it's less tough. Uh, and uh, 
it's um, it's um, something I've, I've never felt that there have been any harsh conflicts that I had to to iron out. Not that many. You mentioned needing the the diplomatic skills. If if you'll humour me, there's a, a few occasions that I was keen to to ask you about. I suppose the first one would be one that came quite early in your role as executive supervisor, which was when Azerbaijan hosted the contest in in 2012. How was that for you in your position from a pure organisational point of view? Because, of course, we saw the Crystal Hall in Baku go up incredibly quickly. There were a number of claims of, of human rights abuses in the country at the time. Is that something that sort of falls on your door as the executive supervisor? Or is that something that you wouldn't necessarily have a position on or the EBU wouldn't have a position on? I mean, when it, when it came to the year in in Baku, uh, yeah, I can confirm it was a, it was a challenging year. First of all, because they they absolutely lacked the experience of hosting an event this size. Uh, the broadcaster was not in a very good shape financially, or or even how it was organized. But there was a lot of will there and the will to do it. Uh, when it comes to the, the discussions around the the human rights situation, of course, that was something we had to deal with, but that was dealt with on a higher level at the EU, basically. And not so much, uh, my focus was to prepare some contest and not to, to engage in all kind of political debates, although I did uh, now and then. But, uh, but I think it's, I mean, all the NGOs uh, that, that approached us, uh, they have, the right to do so. I mean, it's good to discuss the situation uh, in Europe uh, and, and use the limelight of the Eurovision Song Contest to do so. But uh, my primary focus was to stage a good Eurovision Song Contest in Baku, and I think we managed to do that. Good evening, Europe! Welcome to the grand final of the 57th Eurovision Song Bonsoir l'Europe! Soyez les bienvenus à la grande finale de 57e concours Eurovision de la chanson. Archaman Hayer Bakke! Was one of the challenges, and I appreciate this is one of the more minor challenges when it comes to the, the Eurovision Song Contest in 2012, but was one of the challenges the, the start time? I'm always shocked when I look back and remember that I think local time, the Eurovision in 2012 kicked off at midnight in Azerbaijan, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, that was challenging to, to put it um, mildly. But, you know, when DBU decided that, that Azerbaijan and the broadcast in Azerbaijan should be uh, participating in the Eurovision Song Contest, we knew that if they won, we had to host it midnight in, in Baku or in Azerbaijan. So but then you, we just have to cope with it. But I, 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 I think it would be... Uh, a greater challenge to move the contest further east because then you would have uh, really a, a nighttime slot uh, or, or morning slot, uh, which for instance, is the reason you cannot host the Eurovision Song Contest in Australia. How rigid is that eight o'clock start time? You know, is that set down in the in the rules when it comes to organising the contest? You have to start it at eight pm UK time, nine o'clock Central European time. Yeah, that's right. 
Uh, and I'm, that's good because then, you know, everyone knows when so they can schedule uh, the evening uh, as they used to. And I think that's, that's it's a good starting point for the Eurovision Song Contest. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's set out and uh, we haven't, you know, really discussed to change that. You mentioned, you know, that would be one of the problems with moving the contest further east. I think one of the countries, of course, that comes up time and time again when this discussion is is held is is Kazakhstan, of course. Was the idea that Kazakhstan would ever take part in the Eurovision Song Contest something that was, you know, discussions that were taking place during your time at the EBU, discussions that, that still potentially continue today? Well, there were discussions, uh, or, or to put it a different way, there's a really keen interest from the broadcaster in Kazakhstan to participate in the Eurovision Song Contest. But so far that hasn't been, you know, uh, hasn't been any, uh, it has been done, um, let me put it this way, there has never been any serious discussion at EBU to bring them in for, for the reason that, that uh, they're not a member of the EBU. And, uh, and we really don't need to broaden out the scope uh, of participating countries in the Eurovision Song Contest. So, uh, so yeah, there were discussions, but uh, there were never any serious talk to bring them in. Where does that leave countries like Kosovo? You know, Kosovo is another country who, you know, the fans, numerous fans have said would love to see at the contest. Is, is that another one that, you know, those discussions have actually never been had or is, is that a different challenge entirely? Oh, it's it's uh, it's a bit different challenge, but uh, but there's been no uh, attempt from DBU to, to to bring Kosovo or the the broadcaster in Kosovo into the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, we ha- had discussions about it, but they again they they lack the status uh, as a broadcaster to be able to enter into the Eurovision Song Contest. And at the time that we're talking now, the, there's some reports that. Potentially one of the countries that hasn't taken part in Eurovision for a long time, you know, Monaco may be looking to return to the contest. We know they've got a, a really esteemed history in the Eurovision, even more so countries like Luxembourg. And, and then there are the small countries like Andorra that we've seen come and go as well. How much of your role as the executive supervisor is to attract those countries back, the countries that used to take part at Eurovision and haven't for an awful long time? We have had talks with all of the broadcasters you mentioned. Uh, it's not been a priority for us to bring them back. They would have been welcome if they, because they are full members of the EBU, they have a history with the Eurovision Song Contest. So, so uh, uh, although I don't know the status for the Luxembourg broadcaster at the moment, but, uh, but there's not, hasn't been a priority for us to bring them in. Again, it's really not a need to grow the, the numbers of participants in Eurovision Song Contest. And I, I would say that Turkey would have a higher priority um, than, than Monaco, for example. But Monaco would be welcome, uh, I'm sure, at any time. But I'm not at the EU at the moment, so <laughs> I cannot really invite them I think all of this began with me asking you about some of the more challenging diplomatic moments of your time as, as the executive supervisor. I suppose the next contest I was going to ask you about, which must have been a real challenge, was, was 2017, of course, the contest that was held in, in Kiev. Before I talk about the, the kind of the organisation in, in Kiev, 
how difficult was trying to deal with the inner politics of of Russia and Ukraine during that event? Because Russia, of course, a huge Eurovision nation, a country with a with a massive history in the contest, who didn't take part in in twenty seventeen. How difficult was that to deal with? It was it was difficult, but not that difficult. Uh, we knew the moment that that the Broadcaster in Kiev won the Eurovision Song Contest in, in Stockholm. We knew that this would be a challenge. Uh, and then you, you have to just you know, try to work your way around it. Uh, we cannot sort of prevent the, 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 the political situation uh, and, uh, or, or, you know, change the political situation uh, between uh, Ukraine and Russia. So, uh, so we just have to work our way around it. And um, I'm sad that the Russian broadcaster couldn't participate. And we had long talks with them. And, uh, and we also had long talks with the broadcaster in, in Kiev. And uh, it was a difficult situation. And uh, unfortunately, it ended as it ended. But, uh, but we knew from, the, you know, from day one that we, we would have, or we could have faced an issue one of the most revealing interviews we had on the podcast earlier on in the year was with Krista Bjorkman, who who came in and sat down with us and, and spoke to us for an awful long time. And and one of the, the most interesting, for me anyway, parts of that conversation was the insight that Krista gave us into the organisation of the contest in Kiev in 2017. And I think a specific phone call, I think he said he took to get him involved and to help make sure that that contest made it to where. Do, do you remember thinking, I'm going to have to call Krista and we're going to have to see whether we can make this happen or not? <laughs> well, I can't uh, really recall that, but, but, but I know we, we wanted to involve him at, at some point because the whole team that have been preparing the Eurovision Song Contest since day one, uh, uh, the whole team at the broadcaster, uh, decided to leave the broadcaster uh, close to the end of the year uh, in sixteen. Uh, and uh, and and of course that was that was a massive challenge because then we were left without the key personnel and the core team that have been working on this for for a long time and I had been working with them uh, very closely so uh, we needed to get some uh, expertise on board uh, and uh, and I mean Christa has a, has a lot of knowledge and. Uh, and uh, it was uh, it was a, you know natural to it was good to involve him and, and, and a natural thing to do uh, and uh, several other uh, European professionals that we decided to invite to to be a part of the team uh, in Kiev. Uh, but that was that was a tough year and uh, that was a tough challenge to to see the whole team leaving uh, so close to to um, the new year. So um, with only a couple of months to go, but that was only a small part of the challenges in, 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 in Ukraine, because we also had challenges with the you know, tender procedures that had to be done according to Ukrainian law. And it took forever uh, to, to get these tenders up and to, to get the right companies involved. And um, so, so there was not only a lack of, of people, it was a lack of uh, your, the, the right equipment in the end. 
Live from Kiev, Ukraine, a warm welcome to the Eurovision Song Contest 2017 with your hosts, Oleksandr Skichko, Volodymyr Ostapchuk, and Timur Miroshnichenko. Good evening, Ukraine, Europe, planet Earth. To everyone who has tuned in and made this great journey, thank you. It's our honor and a great pleasure to welcome you all to the first semi-final of the Eurovision Song Contest here in Kyiv. Laskavo prosimo, do sercia, Ukraine! How would you describe your relationship with Christy Bjorkman? Of course, he's someone who is forever intertwined and will forever be intertwined with your own history with, with Eurovision, having been such a prominent figure during that time. Well, I know Christa for many years, and, and, and many years before I started in, in the position as the executive supervisor. I mean, Christa is a highly professional uh, uh, music and, and, and TV expert and uh, has worked with Melody Festival, as we all know, for, for many years. Uh, he has really made a, you know, a mark on, on, on that um, contest in Sweden and also... Uh, the Eurovision Song Contest. And uh, I have a good relationship with Christopher and uh, I, uh, I admire him for his, uh, you know, for his, the way he managed to focus uh, on, you know, getting the best possible, both acts and, 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 and songs and artists on the stage of Melody Festival. Uh, and also how he has transformed his knowledge into Eurovision Song Contest. I've been in way was in a key position uh, both in Malmo and in, in Stockholm and also in in, in specific and uh, and uh, and important roles in other Eurovision song contests and so yes Christopher is, is definitely uh, one of the one of the best Eurovision song contest experts uh, in Europe in my opinion what do you make of his his current project calling it a project seems to massively undersell it but of course i'm talking about the american song contest which uh, is due to come to our screens in 2022 what do you think about the fact that that's seemingly finally going to happen i'm very happy for that uh it started in my time uh i i was you know i drafted up the first uh uh first contracts really for for or, or not single-handed but uh, it started under my time, and uh, and I'm very happy. Uh, now it seems like you know they will succeed. I've had some talks with with Christopher from LA, where he is at the moment, um, working with the Americans. And uh, if if this you know if this really uh, is coming alive in uh, this year in April. Uh, starting already in February, it will be a massive success for the Eurovision Song Contest as well. Managed to bring that format over to the US. So uh, I'm very happy with that. How important is it that, as you said, while it will in part, you know, help Eurovision and the, the Eurovision that we know if it is a success, how important is it that those two contests remain relatively separate, if you know what I mean, that we don't see... America competing at, at Eurovision, for example. 
Well, uh, it's, it's really not up to me to decide that. There was never, a, never an idea that the winner uh, of the American Song Contest should, should compete in Europe. Uh, that has never been a part of the idea. The part, you know, the idea was to broaden out the brand and to, to you know, put up successful TV shows uh, based on the Eurovision Song Contest and with the strong values of the Eurovision Song Contest in different territories. We tried this for for many years in the Asian region, and we didn't succeed. Uh, it's a very complicated and diverse market uh, in Asia. U.S. is also very complicated, but uh, I'm, I'm happy that we have it here. And I think it should stand on its own feet and become, uh, you know, part of the TV legacy in the U.S. as well. You mentioned the proposed Asian version of, of the Eurovision Song Contest there. Had that been a success and, and had that have come earlier on in the decade, would we have ever seen Australia at Eurovision? If there was a successful Asia vision, would there have been a need for Australia to be at the Eurovision Song Contest? Well, uh, Australia and uh, the Australian broadcaster has a history with the Eurovision Song Contest dating back more than 30 years, you know, they, you know more than 30 years back. And uh, they feel um, very attached to Europe yeah. in, in Australia. And the Eurovision Song Contest was already a massive hit in, in Australia. So, so for that reason, I, I think it was, was a given thing that, that we should let them in. Uh, if, for instance, you know, if, hypothetically, the Asian song contest was a successful contest 15 years ago, well, maybe that would be um, enough for them. I don't know. But I, I know that they feel very attached. They have a lot of European diaspora there, and they feel very attached to the Eurovision Song Contest. And as I said, for many, many years, uh, they have broadcasted the Eurovision Song Contest. They have some commentators. Uh, they have, you know, audience, quite good audience, uh, bearing in mind that they air at five o'clock in the morning. So, so well, it's difficult to say, and, uh, and uh, we will probably never know. How much deliberation was there about Australia debuting in 2015? Of course, we saw them as the Interlats in 2014. How much back and forth was there at the EBU at that time as to whether that was going to be the right decision? Well, it's been quite a lot of back and forth, but uh, but I think it, you know everyone saw that this could add a lot of excitement to the song contest uh, and uh, that it would be a good thing to do. And I think they've proven that they... Uh, they, you know, they can deliver good acts and songs. And, uh, and uh, I mean, most people were overall very positive. But there's some criticism from, especially from the fans, basically. And, uh, but none of the broadcasters participating in the Eurovision Song Contest were against this. It was, a, you know, a massive uh, yes from, from Everyone, you know, all the uh, governing committees and uh, governing groups around the Song Contest consisting of members. So, uh, although um, although we we said we would try out for for uh, some years to see if this is um, something we should continue to do, uh, I think everyone saw that this was the right move. I wanted to ask you next about you know, some of your proudest moments in your, in your time, which I think is a, is a nicer question than the one I asked you earlier about your least favourite parts of the job, of which we found out there were none. 
But would you say that, to begin with, that the the integration of Australia into Eurovision probably is one of your proudest moments from your time? Yeah, again, uh, I'll answer in the same way I did with the least favorable moments. It's, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've had most, you know, good... I'm proud of every contest, actually, uh, and that we managed to do it, managed to develop it, that we managed to do changes in, you know, in the format and the rules. Uh, Australia is, is one, uh, you know, that we changed the rule of the draw of the running order. Uh, I think that's the single most important change that, uh, change that has been done uh, in the Eurovision Sound Contest for many, many years. Uh, for the first time, you could really compose the best possible TV show. Uh, huge uh, uh, advantage for the, for the contest. And so, so many things to be proud of, but, but most of all, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, of you know, all of the sound contests and, uh, and how we managed to steer it around Europe. And, and, um, uh, and, and then there are a lot of work behind the scenes that you don't see, the financial setup, the... The, the way you structure the, the logistics of the sound contest, not something that you actually visit, or it's, it's not that fun to, to hear about, but, but uh, important anyway. We, we talked a little bit earlier, and you mentioned it just before there, about one of your proudest moments was, was seeing the rule change when it came to the draw, of course, for the running order. Now, would you say that that is, is a rule that you're the most happy with from your time there or is that something that you wish had gone even further you know could we see a position where actually every single position is default is decided rather than countries choosing you know first half and second half and, and only the host drawing a number at the moment that, that would be my preferred uh option uh, but i also see a good thing about the allocation draw i think it creates a momentum or a moment in in, in January, where you can, you know, early in the year, where you can, you know, make a small event, event out of the host city, and by that put a focus on the Eurovision Song Contest. So, so it's, it has a purpose, uh, but when it comes to composing the shows, I, I would have preferred to, to actually use the, the uh, a well-proven recipe for making TV shows. I mean, you compose the best possible running order. And uh, and that's how we make a great show. So, um, but uh, but um, I see that the allocation draw as it is now works for the Eurovision Song Contest. So, so that's 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 fine. What would you say to, to those people who, you know, might suggest that, well, that means that the, the people that make the, the decision on, you know, where someone sits in that running order effectively get to, to either help or hinder a certain country's chances at, at winning the contest and they do so deliberately? Why should they do that? It's a good question. Just to kind of get right in our minds, who is it that does decide the eventual running order? Is it the host broadcaster? Is it the EBU or is it both? No, it's, it's uh, the executive supervisor and the chairman of the reference group that's in the end decides. And, uh, uh, and yeah, I mean, the host broadcaster is maybe you member and those people at the host broadcaster who has the, um, the authority to propose a running order to DBU are highly professional people. 
that would never ever uh, try to hinder a song. I mean, it, 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 it's we talk a lot about the running order. Uh, when already when the songs start to come into the EU, uh, could be in, in early January, February, which we, we see the songs and we talk about uh, how important it is that all the songs will get a position where they can perform at their best. And, uh, and so, so, so always talk about that this is you know unfair because some people will sit in a in an office and try to you know make a, a running order that would hinder someone from 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 performing at their best it's, that's just you know it's just not on is there a rule change that you didn't get to make during your time that you would have liked to and you look back now and you wish that you'd managed to to get the reference group to support it and get it through yeah i'm uh... Nothing that comes to my mind. I mean, there's always discussions about rule changes and uh, pros and cons with the way we do things, deadlines, uh, delivery plans. There are, there are a lot of details that we always discuss uh, with the reference group or, or even in the higher governing bodies uh, of the Eurovision Song Contest. So they and with the members, uh, we always uh, we can get suggestion from from members that we shouldn't we do it like this. Could be a good thing. We talk to the reference group about it, or we discuss it internally at the EBU. We prepare a note to the reference group about it. Uh, I mean, there, there are always discussions around this, but no major things where I feel that I've been you know uh, blocked or stopped. Uh, but it's important that you don't do too many changes uh, uh, with the Eurovision Sound Contest. It's it's uh, it's you should be you should you know move it slowly um, to make sure that it doesn't lose uh, its uh, you know solidity. If I can say it like that, it has to be you know, taken well care of, care of, always care of. So that's why we always discuss thoroughly at EBU and with the reference group when we are approaching changes. And sometimes we just drop them before we even, you know, present them to make sure that we, you know, or we see that this won't work or won't benefit the contest. Quick one from me, which is, is there a reason why a country's jury can't be bigger? It seems like a quite a small amount of people have a, have an awful lot of say when it comes to, comes to the voting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, it's it's there is there, you know it's it's just a, uh, a, a logistic challenge. It wouldn't be a problem in, in Germany to have a much bigger jury. Bearing in mind that they have to be a, a balanced jury and a professional jury, balanced in a way with gender, age, and 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 also and and then the professional background. They should have a professional background. That could be more challenge in smaller countries. Uh, and bearing in mind also that you have to renew the jury and you cannot have people sitting um, on that position year after year. So, and we see already now that some broadcasters have problem finding a well-balanced jury of five. But yeah, now it could be, it could be more. For sure, there, there are no, so this is, this is not written in stone anyway. So uh, that might be changed. I don't know, could be. 
we, we discussed it every year. Now, the majority of our of our listeners are, are probably listening from the United Kingdom, but I'm sure they're listening from from various parts of the world. Therefore, I, of course, have to ask for your for your thoughts on, on the UK's performance during your time as the executive supervisor, because I think it's safe to say you, you know, you weren't responsible for, but you were definitely overseeing the UK's most difficult period when it comes to the, the contest. Does Eurovision need a strong UK in it to be as successful as it could be? Look at the results for, for the UK over the last years. And, and uh, as you said, they are, I'm sure they're not happy about it themselves, the BBC, but it's a massive, so Eurovision Song Contest is a massive success uh, in the UK. Uh, and uh, they have this tongue in cheek uh, view on the Eurovision Song Contest. And I'm, I have a feeling that, that for some people in the UK, they will be um, a bit disappointed if, if it became too serious. Uh, and uh, I would have loved to have stronger acts from the UK. But I see how and the love of, of the Eurovision sometimes in the UK, I mean, how, how much they love it. So uh, I think we have a strong uh, UK uh, present in the Eurovision Song Contest, but not when it comes to uh, the position uh, they end up with their, with their songs. Uh, I mean, it hasn't been really well over the last, or, or very well uh, over the last years. We will begin with the country that is now in last place. That is United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom gets from the public Zero points. The, the good thing to see is that there, there's strong commitment with the BBC to stay with the Eurovision Song Contest. And I know they're working hard, but uh, no, I, it's difficult for me to say why they, they don't succeed. But, um, but uh, I'm, 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 I, I, I'm very happy for the figures and for the excitement and the, the drive that's that's the UK uh, used to the, the Eurovision Song Contest. To have a, a, a varied and entertaining Eurovision, will you always need some countries taking it more seriously than others? You know, if, if everybody took it incredibly seriously, as, you know, countries like, say, Sweden do, for example, would Eurovision not be as entertaining as, as it is? Yeah, well... <laughs> I, I think the mix that we have on that stage, and I feel that everyone uh, really uh, is taking this serious, but, uh, but it is a very special uh, TV show, a very special competition. And, uh, and the good mix that we have, uh, you know, the, the blend of music, uh, uh, the, the, the the blend of artists, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a very good mix as it is right now. And yeah, you're right. I, I don't think it should be a really hardcore, serious music competition. Uh, although I feel that everyone taking part in the Eurovision Song Contest are really serious about their act. And, uh, and I know that from being backstage and following the rehearsals. I know how much it means to, to, to everyone participating. Moving forward to, to 2022, of course, I know you're, you're no longer in the, in the position. You're now 
kind of watching on like a I don't know watching on like a like an uncle at Christmas which <laughs> is an image that I like to imagine your your room when it comes to when yeah. it comes when it comes to Eurovision is that right is that about right you look at it as a as a loved member of the family yeah I mean I, I'm very happy with how the 21 edition came out and the work that was done uh, by the broadcasters in the Netherlands and the team there I, I think it was a incredibly you know good show coming after the pandemic or in the middle of the pandemic and they managed to do this this very well some was sort of very happy about that and and i i will follow the eurovision song contest for sure uh and i will you know i have good contacts with, with people involved uh in the in the contest both from the broadcaster side and from production side and uh, yeah, I will, I will follow it uh, over the years. But it's, uh, as I said, the, the role of the executive supervisor is, is a job. And then you finish that job and you move on to other uh, challenges. And, uh, you know, I, I don't pay very much attention to how it's going in, in Italy. And uh, I'm looking forward to see the shows uh, for sure. And I'm sure that Rye will put up three spectacular shows in May, but uh, but uh, whether I watch it in a pub somewhere or uh, a party or uh, you know home with some friends, I don't know. Um, it's uh, it, you know it's uh, it's a job, and and now I'm continuing uh, you know doing other things. Sorry, I can't stop now without thinking about what a Yon Olasan Eurovision party might look like. What would you? What would you? Uh, what would be on offer on the the Yon Olasan buffet? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I haven't uh, planned that yet. Could go from a pizza to a lobster. I don't know. Maybe a lobster pizza. Oh, that sounds that sounds fantastic. Uh, I, I've kept you for more than enough time, but I've just got a, a couple very quickly to ask you before we let you go. Uh, one thing we've seen in 2022, I know you said you're not looking at it closely, but one thing that we are seeing for the forthcoming Eurovision is a lot of countries returning to national selections and national finals, which I know is something you're a big fan of. If it were up to you and, and had been up to you at the time, would you have liked to have seen more countries embrace that format to select their entry? Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's really important for the brand that you have a national selection. It's important for your artists that you have had some kind of a national selection where also the, the audience uh, watching it could be, uh, you know, have a voice in who they should send to the Eurovision Song Contest stage. Uh, so I would love to have more uh, national selections. And maybe this is one of the, the uh, rule changes that I've been managed to to do, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm maybe is a little bit disappointed of, is that we wanted to make the national selection mandatory for all the participating broadcasters because we think it's very important for the brands. I think it's important for the artists. I think it's important for the for the quality of the shows. And um, for that reason, we wanted to do a mandatory national selection show. Uh, uh, to, 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 you know, before you enter the Eurovision Song Contest. Unfortunately, that was shot down. And I can understand that because we shouldn't decide on the schedule of the, the participating broadcasters. We shouldn't decide on what kind of programs they should put on air. That's a bit contradictory to, to public service thinking. So um, 
but but yeah, I, w- I would love to see more national selection shows, and I'm happy to see that that more countries are uh, are doing that because uh, it's uh, it's absolutely good for the Eurovision somehow. You've touched on on Rye, of course, the Italian broadcaster organising the 2022 contest. How nice is it that things have almost come full circle for you? Of course, you're no longer there, but your first Eurovision in the role saw Italy returning to the contest after so long. They've taken it incredibly seriously and they are now winners and again and are hosting the contest how nice was that to see for you because you know you did mention how pleased you were with the 2021 contest and how much was that to do with with who the eventual winners were i mean Morrison gave a great performance it was absolutely uh i mean it had to win and and i think it was a great act a great song uh, great stage in all of it. Um, and uh, I'm very proud of Riot because uh, it, they came on board, as you say, they were back on board again after many years in 2011. And uh, they have built the brand so well in Italy, bringing it from, from a small niche channel up to their main channel um, and, uh, and winning it. And uh, this tells me that it's possible uh, to treat the brand uh, in a way, uh, domestically, uh, that uh, that really can build a success, and and I think Rai has done that, and I'm very proud of them actually, and especially for my colleague uh, Nicola Cangiore, uh, who is the head of delegation uh, for many years, and he actually quit uh, Rai uh, a year before they won, so uh, so but he single-handedly uh, has a lot of, of, um, of uh, honor or credit for, for how Rye treated the brands and uh, that eventually led to their success. So uh, no, I think the Rye example is a very good example for other broadcasters to follow. Yonola, it has been absolutely fantastic to, to chat to you. We, we've had a, a, a brilliant time just getting such a, a brilliant insight into Eurovision, your time involved in the contest, and it has been tremendous just to sit back and listen to, to all of your answers. So a huge thank you from me and, and from all of our listeners. And I'll let you get planning that Eurovision party buffet for May 2022. I'll tell you how it went. I will do that. <laughs> Yonala, thank you so much. And we'll speak soon. Thank you. Thank you so much to Jon Olesand for being so generous with his time. And I think you'll agree, that was a brilliant listen. He is so interesting. Great that he is so open about his time in the role and some really fascinating bits in there as well. You can just tell how much, for example, he regrets that Turkey weren't part of Eurovision during his time in the role and how much he would like to see Turkey back on the Eurovision stage. Also, my question about the juries. You know, could the juries at Eurovision be bigger sometime soon? That discussion continues. And also nice for him to reflect on Italy hosting Eurovision in 2022 as well because he was there pretty much for their entire journey since they returned to the contest just before they won in Rotterdam. So fascinating to get his thoughts 
on that as well. There are so many other things in there that I've not mentioned, but really just thank you, Yonola, for sitting down. And thank you to all of you for listening as well. Please do. Honestly, let me know your thoughts at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I'd love to know what you thought of what you've just heard. And hello at EurotripPodcast.com on the email as well. Now, that is the first festive gift that we have got for you from the Eurotrip between Christmas and New Year. Because next week, so next Wednesday, James will be here with you and he will have his gift to you, which will see you through to the New Year. Now, we have got another brilliant feature-length chat for you, and this time it is with Karen Gunnison. Now, Karen is one of the producers of Melody Festival in 2022, so it is a brilliant behind-the-scenes chat all about what you can expect from Melfest in 2022, also about how she comes to choose the acts that are going to be in Melody Festival and, and all sorts of other brilliant stuff as well. So if you are a Melfest fan, then make sure you listen to next week's special Christmas bonus feature-length chat. That hopefully sells it enough for you. Karen Gunnison, producer of Melody Festival, is with James on this podcast next week. But it's been brilliant to have you. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. And as James would say, if he were here, don't forget to leave us a review, rate us five star, and subscribe to the podcast as well. He normally says that in a different order, but you know what I mean. Thank you very much, everybody. And from me, it is, of course, a very Merry Christmas. Goodbye. 